a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, whether you're a truth seeker, a truth speaker, or just somebody who likes to dabble in wrong think, my friend, you have found the right place. You're going to feel right at home here, so pull up a chair. I want to quickly thank some of the sponsors who make this show possible on a day-to-day basis. They include HSLAmmo.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and GarageDoorProServices.com. I got to tell you, I, I waver back and forth on any given day as I just try to take in all of what's going on. I, I find myself struggling occasionally between feeling optimistic and energized and, and privileged to, to live and to be awake at this particular time in, in history. And sometimes I just feel like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is getting so much worse by the minute. How on earth are we ever going to make it through? So, um, yeah, you know, I, I like to I like to think that to, to, to people listening, you know, it's wow, that Brian, that sounds like he sounds like a pretty cool character, cool as a cucumber and nothing seems to ruffle him. Now, the truth is, I, I do get rattled and I appreciate it when I have friends like my friend Tyler yesterday just gave me the reminder that that I have given so many other people before I needed to hear it, though. And that is we were born for this time. Lavoie Finnicum always every time I ever met with him. There, there, somehow that was part of our conversation. He always would, would remind me we were born for this time. In other words, be happy about it. Consider it an honor to stand for truth in times where standing for truth is uh, getting more dangerous by the minute. So I thought we'd dive into a couple of different topics today. And one of them I want to do is I, I'm going to start. I'm going to get kind of the uh, the angst out of my system here early on, but uh, I, I have some really great stuff to share. So bear with me as I get this first part off my chest. Trying to quantify the amount of official mischief done and being done and, uh, you know, being proposed by our government, it's really hard to know how to start. How do you how do you summarize the scope of the problem for people who are just starting to get an inkling that, well, maybe this isn't right? Well, J.B. Shirk does a terrific job of describing the scope of the program. In particular, he's got a great piece in AmericanThinker.com about how the lust for global domination will fail. We win, they lose, that simple. Now, he says, exciting times, a dangerous but exhilarating moment in history to be alive. The ground beneath us quakes. Everything once held certain seems turned to mush. Well, whatever we grasp for balance seems unsteady, too. The world is crashing down, it seems, and no countervailing force exists to keep everything in place. By the way, he is perfectly describing what it's like to live through a fourth turning, which is what we are living through right now. Now, J.B. Shirk says when we accept this reality, when we look around us and say, hey, what was will never be again, then the troubles around us become a little lighter to bear. We're not here to fight for yesterday. We are here to fight for tomorrow. Yesterday gives us guidance, tomorrow gives us purpose. Yet just because we fight for tomorrow does not mean we aren't also fighting for today. When you learn to punch, you're taught to aim beyond your target. You punch through what you meant to hit to maximize force and minimize pain to yourself. 
In the same way, we aim for the future in order to seize today. So he says, we picture together what type of future we want. We strive for that future with ferocity and perseverance. And one day we look around and realize we've managed to build a remarkable world right here in the present. Nothing endures in this earthly existence, but that cycle. It's what we do when challenges arise that matters. Those acts, fleeting though they may be, are our shared legacy to one another. I got to say, I like his uh, philosophy here. He says, so look at the international communist great reset or build back better dystopias as inevitable if you want, but do so knowing that you're watching strikes being thrown into the catcher's mitt without ever swinging. Your mind and soul provide a powerful bat. Our enemies are throwing heat right down the center of the plate, and there's never been a better time to swing for the fences. He says the globalist programs for mass control of humanity have become glaringly obvious. They don't even hide their intentions anymore behind veiled language, secret club meetings, or slanderous aspersions against their critics. They just say right out in the open, yep, we want to reduce the human population, control all energy used for commerce, regulate food production, censor all information antithetical to our goals, cynically divide humanity against itself by promoting meaningless wars, racial hostilities, and ludicrous social conflicts, and force the vast majority of the remaining humans in the future to survive as indentured servants who will own nothing and subsist on a diet of bugs. That is an ugly, depressing, awful future to advertise. Yet so overconfident are the great resetters in their control over emerging artificial intelligence technologies, central bank digital currencies, biological warfare, and mass surveillance, that they say exactly what they plan to do. So confident is the permanent D.C. bureaucracy in its abilities to control all Americans that it no longer disguises its two-tiered justice system or pretends it cares a whit about hard-fought American freedom. Rating the personal residence of a political outsider, like President Trump, to intimidate other prospective adversaries to Washington's corrupt uniparty? Check. Murdering, hunting down, and imprisoning MAGA voters under the pretense of a bogus insurrection narrative supported by an equally corrupt news media and criminal justice system? Check. Hiring massive armies of IRS agents and other bureaucratic mercenaries to execute deadly force against American citizens while simultaneously cataloging gun owners in an ongoing effort to disarm the civilian population? Check. Using the climate change farce and fantasies of systemic racism to implement widespread political Marxism and economic redistribution of wealth indistinguishable from classic communism? Check. Intentionally subverting immigration law to flood American communities with drugs, human trafficking, slave labor, and social disintegration? Check. Manipulating elections with fraudulent mail-in ballots and scant identification requirements. Check. Printing and spending U.S. dollars until inflation and inevitable currency collapse destroy Americans' private wealth and leave them entirely dependent upon government-dispersed welfare. Check. Attacking religiously devout Christians as threats to the state. Check. Censorship of all dissenting opinion. Confiscation of private property under the guise of tax and regulation authorities. Soviet show trials and politically sanctioned professional demotions for anyone courageous enough to challenge the regime's power. Check, check, and check. But notice he calls it out as hubris. Absolute hubris. And J.B. Shirk says, and we should love it. We couldn't ask for a better drug to cloud the judgment of our enemies. 
They're hooked. They can't see clearly, and they will not change now or in the foreseeable future. What they possess with hollow overconfidence, they lack in sober wisdom. They're drug addicts now, deluded in the supremacy of their own enduring power. These are dangerous people, but people who are no longer grounded in any sense of reality. They think they control the quaking ground beneath their feet and believe that they alone will decide what stays in place. They see themselves as gods. And as with all false gods, their vanity will consume them. So J.B. Shirk says, go back and find a time in history when hubris succeeded in subsuming the world to man's will. What conqueror has ever succeeded in holding total power for long? When has overbearing authority not produced an equal and opposite human force of organic rebellion? When has the lust for total global domination not fractured into a tiny million into a million tiny pieces from the uncontrollable energies of once inconsequential humans yearning to be free? When is the desire for one world government, that seductive enticement that grips the minds of unscrupulous men, much, much like Tolkien's one ring to rule them all, when has it ever succeeded? Still waiting. He says the hunger for a global government where an aristocratic elite rules over everyone else has existed throughout human history. And just with every misguided attempt to construct a perpetual motion machine or every alchemist's effort to transform lead into gold, those who wish to rule humanity from the seat of an earthly throne always fail. They drown in the floods unleashed from their own magnificently destructive hubris. He says, show me a group of men who seek to rule the world. I'll tell you the tale of their ultimate annihilation. That is the story of man's struggles in this life. And anyone too drunk with delusions of domination to know what's coming will pay the price. So he says, simplicity. This is, this is uh, how we have to approach this. These are exciting times, but simplicity and common purpose are what combine to drive a final stake through the evil plots of men who sow division, spread harm, and feast on the miseries of others. It's a dangerous yet exhilarating moment to be alive, says J.B. Shirk. But you look around with clarity and purpose, and there's nothing to fear. That tingle in the air right now, he says, is normal. Great change is always electric. Use it beautifully said look the only thing i would add and this is just my own personal annotation lean on god seriously the creator of the universe is really in charge might want to tap into that this is the brian hyde show This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to Garage Door Pros. Serving St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, and Colorado City. Lovely little area of southwestern Utah, northern Arizona, and uh, what would it be? Southeastern Nevada? Anyway, Garage Door Pros, local company that sells and services and repairs garage doors. By the way, that's true for residential as well as for commercial. Quick response, much faster lead time than other companies can give you, and and real, sincere, authentic devotion to customer service. You ought to check out the testimonials on their website, garagedoorproservices.com. It's a pretty significant investment, but if you're going to do it, you might as well do it right. Talk to Garage Door Pros and tell them thank you for sponsoring this program.
Well, I, I, I sometimes hesitate to, to mention this, but I remain a climate change skeptic. And it's not that I don't believe the climate is changing. I think that it is. It is changing, actually. And I think it's also part of a natural solar cycle. Why do I think this? Well, I've got some crazy ideas that, uh, you know, I wish I could say were my own. But no, I've, I've been exposed to some people who think outside the box. Uh, Suspicious Observers YouTube channel is a great place to start. This is one of the things that kind of got me thinking that, well, maybe it really isn't. You know, mankind is... Uh, changing the climate, and if we just give enough money and enough power to politicians, somehow they're going to reverse this. And if you watch some of the videos from suspicious observers, you will see that uh, someone who is a classically trained scientist can actually make a lot of sense in explaining how the sun is what controls our climate and our weather. And it's true with every other planet within our solar system. So guess what? The climate is changing on Mars. The climate is changing on Neptune. And it's all tied to the sun. But I digress. One of the reasons I'm also a uh, skeptic when it comes to climate change is like uh, Frank Liberato, I believe we are not planet-controlling gods. We're just the Earth's stewards. Here's how he puts it. He says, once upon a time when things went terribly wrong in the world, it was believed to be the work of the gods who were for some reason displeased with humanity. So droughts, floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, blizzards, even heat waves were attributed to a vengeful god. Those beliefs are now thought to be nonsense. Instead, our entire economy and the American lifestyle is being overturned in pursuit of a new nonsensical faux religion or faux religious belief system. Today we are told that it is we who are the instruments of our own destruction. Man has flooded Kentucky and caused a drought in California. Certainly gods do not have that kind of power. We create the tragic events that bedevil us, and therefore we have the power to fix them, or to end them, rather. People created global warming, and people can fix it by ridding the world of individual freedom, personal autonomy, internal combustion engines, cheap, abundant energy, and inexpensive quality food. That's the message we're getting. The lesson that the American middle class must learn by whatever means necessary, or we will all perish. But he asks, what about the long ages before man? Human beings have been around for maybe 300,000 years. Who was wreaking havoc on the world before we appeared on the scene? There were no polar ice caps over 90% of Earth's history, 99% of Earth's history. Our planet has been a much warmer place for most of its existence. The first ice caps appeared just over 30 million years ago. Since then, great sheets of ice have engulfed almost the entire planet on perhaps five separate occasions. Each time the ice receded, the ice caps all but disappeared. The last such event began its ebb about 12,000 years ago. By the way, uh, Suspicious Observers talks about that 12,000-year cycle. Just something to keep in mind. It's been warming ever since... And if the pattern were to hold true, the global warming would continue to be a part of life for thousands of years to come. Whose fault is that? See, within these larger patterns, there exist millions of smaller-scale climate events. The medieval warming period of the little climactic optimum lasted an estimated 300 years, with average temperatures much higher than AOC's current doomsday scenario. The great irony is this was a beneficial for humanity. Famine and disease were rolled back. The popula population flourished. The little ice age of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries saw sporadically much cooler temperatures than we have today and a corresponding decrease in the quality of life. 
So when we look at the big picture, it appears we're not in an existential crisis. Global warming is blamed for every drought, flood, storm, heat wave, and cold snap that rolls across the fruited plain, but statistically, the last 40 years have been much less deadly in pertaining to natural disasters than at any other time in our history. Now, this is usually attributed to better predictive technology and early warnings, but what's less, what's seldom mentioned, and contrary to popular belief, rather, is that major storms are less common. We are experiencing a period of relative climate calm. Now, he says we should be good stewards of the earth, for that's in our best interest. Authoritarian governments care little or not at all about the environment. It's the free individual citizen making a difference through the electoral process who causes positive change. If we really wanted to control greenhouse gas emissions, we would be returning power to the individual instead of trying to strip it all away. People usually do good things. Governments usually do not. A government of the people is more likely to address any real environmental issues that may arise. Now, he points out America is a much cleaner place than most countries in the world. It was even cleaner decades ago before communists infiltrated many of our institutions. Water was safe to drink. Major advances were made toward cleaning the air. Communist countries, though, are choked with pollution and poverty. Yet the left in our country clearly has communism as its goal. Now, China's made great strides in convincing the rest of the world to rely on Chinese windmills and solar panels for their energy needs. This, while China's own energy grid, which is 70% coal-fired power plants, moves to build 150 gigawatts of new coal-fired power capacity from 2022 until 2025. Now, as recently as the 1990s, the Chinese power grid was very unreliable. Blackouts and brownouts were common occurrences. Today, the grid in the United States is unreliable. And China seems to be generating all the electricity it needs with capacity increasing. What's wrong with this picture? In Texas, a cold snap froze the windmills and there wasn't enough energy to keep people warm. In California, brownouts and restrictions are becoming commonplace when demand is too high or it's too cloudy or the wind stops blowing. These renewable energies are purchased at a vastly higher cost to the average consumer than the more traditional energy sources. This is what the future will look like for all of us if we continue down this path. And relying on China for any of our crucial domestic needs is a very bad idea. Punishing Americans for their energy use will do nothing to solve global warming. First, you must admit that global warming is a problem about which we can do nothing. We can strive to improve environmental conditions, but not at the point of a gun. If we all started driving electric vehicles tomorrow, it would do virtually nothing to change our national carbon footprint. 78% of our power grid is based on fossil fuels. When you plug in your car, you're still emitting carbon. It's just not coming out of the tailpipe. Furthermore, we would overload the grid, which is already struggling. Frank Liberato says we should continue our efforts to clean the environment, but there is no crisis. Current technologies are expensive and unreliable. The powers that be want to force these technologies on us so they can all get rich like Al Gore or, more importantly, to advance an agenda. And he says the people pushing the whole global warming hoax are either communist true believers or useful dupes. They're globalists. They hope to destroy the American way of life by crashing our economy and pitting Americans against one another. If they truly believed we were facing an existential crisis, they would not be flying around in their polluting private jets or buying expensive beachfront properties. They don't believe it. 
It's just another part of the plan, like global cooling 50 years ago or racial division today. So Frank Liberato says it's not God or humanity that's responsible for changes in the climate. It is nature. Now, we can pretend this is not the case and we can allow the left to tear down this great country or we can say enough is enough. He says we need to stop allowing this hoax to be perpetuated in high schools and colleges and universities and at all levels of government. Most importantly, we need to stop voting for it and for those who advance this destructive narrative. It's kind of refreshing to see somebody who's a really good, hardcore climate skeptic. I've got a link to this in the show notes. Check it out for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part by HSLAmmo.com. I hope you'll click on the link, do a little shopping, get yourself set up with some ammo, which is not only a great way to make a joyous noise for freedom, but also a great way to develop your skillet arms and a pretty handy store of value as well. If you've been watching the depreciating dollar and thinking, man, what can I put my money into that is going to hold its value? Gold, silver, lead, copper, brass. Yep. In their own way, they're all precious metals. Anyway, check them out. HSLAmmo.com. Well, a quick glance around the around us should reinforce the idea that the world needs grown-ups. I've got a great article here from Paul Rosenberg, The Return of the Adults, in which he talks about how we have abandoned adulthood and how it's come back to bite us. Paul Rosenberg says it wasn't very hard to see, as the 70s passed into the 80s and the 90s, that adults were abandoning their roles in the world. And here's what he means. They resigned en masse and were replaced with youth-friendly types. Youth culture had become a great sales tool, after all, due to largely overly indulgent parents. But now, he says, the cultures of the West have been widely youthanized, pun intended, but sadly applicable. Just a small example, he says, you can hardly find a museum these days that hasn't sold out to bright colors and dumbed-down exhibits. Now, Paul Rosenberg points out, it's not the youth who are culpable for this, of course, Youth is a necessary stage that we all go through. It's the adults who are at fault for abdicating their natural roles. Now, he says adulthood is a much longer stage than youth and a far more important one that ought not be abandoned. A world depleted of adults and adult characteristics is a world geared for foolishness. So he says, before jumping into the good news, I should specify a bit on what has happened over the past 50 years as adulthood has been progressively abandoned. So here's just kind of a brief recounting. He says, by evading adulthood, a large percentage of the populace has also learned to evade responsibility, since responsibility was seen as an adult thing. Now, the truth, of course, is that responsibility isn't an adult thing. It's, an, it's a heroic thing. That point, however, has seldom been made, and almost never on the largest platforms. Paul Rosenberg says, because responsibility has become so terrifying to so many people, the application of guilt has become inordinately powerful. Socialism has reigned. In fact, he says, see Marx's initial wish list and compare it to modern governance. Marxists have already gotten almost everything they wanted. And this occurred largely because so few proud adults were seen or heard. 
Socialist major, socialists major on complaining, and complaints resonate with young people. More importantly, the young are inexperienced with cause and effect, so it's easy for them to accept the magical solutions of the socialists. He says the height of enjoyment has become the life of a beer commercial or music video, championing nothing or little, little or nothing north of the belly. This forges meaningless lives, devoid of enduring satisfactions. And so meaning has been pushed out of the larger culture. And that's a gaping void. He says the talented young person who tries to adult up risks becoming other to many of his or her contemporaries. The abandonment of adulthood has led to poor parenting. He also says thinking, for most people, most of the time, has become skin deep. Five-second sound bites, 400-word thought pieces, trite little slogans that will decide who will control other people's lives, and 140-character mind food. It's all surface stuff. As Ray Bradbury noted, we bombard people with sensation. That substitutes for thinking. Paul Rosenberg says humans need to understand deeply, in concepts, and if they do not, things begin to rot. But he also points out that deep thinking requires time and focus, and the world of social media, TV, news, and politics is structured to prevent precisely that. Also, he points out, our culture has become deeply permeated with fear. There are many reasons for this, but he says the maintenance of adulthood would have restrained it and perhaps prevented it. So the bottom line is, the world needs grown-ups. Because without them, we get slaves and masters. Now, the good news is, adulthood is returning. As it happens, the mainline culture is burning itself down just as a new generation, Generation Z, is leaving it. By nearly all accounts, these young people are more adult-minded than those who raised them. Perhaps it's because they've seen where it led, or perhaps it's something else, but they are not the same as their parents. To put the situation into rough terms, the cultural arbiters of the West have been forced, have forced rather, each succeeding generation into the model of the baby boomers. Selling to children is a lot easier than selling to adults, after all. But it wasn't always so. The Enlightenment, among other episodes, featured people who were tired of living as children and who sought adulthood. Immanuel Kant, in What is Enlightenment, described it this way. He said, Enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-imposed childhood. Huh, that's a good quote. Man, as Rabbi Herschel used to say, is not always blind. And so it seems that a young generation is wearying of perpetual childhood imposed upon them by perpetual children. And Paul Rosenberg says, let's support them as best we can. I like his optimism. I like that, uh, that he is taking a good, hard look at this, and, and it comes down to personal responsibility. And I see this, by the way. I see it in my kids. Now, I'm a Gen Xer, which... In some ways, I, I kind of feel just a little bit smug because Gen X, you know, doesn't get to, we don't get quite the hate that the boomers get or that, you know, Generation Y, you know, gets. Um, we're, we're the millennials for that matter. We, we seem to have got a little bit of a pass, but I do totally see what he's talking about of the, the more uh, adult attitudes of the upcoming generations. And I think it's a good thing. I think this also plays into that fourth-turning methodology because there are generational archetypes. And as weird as it sounds, you know, the, the mindset of my generation is very, very different from the mindset of my parents' generation. And I see that difference in my kids' generation. I think these are complementary things, not necessarily adversarial. 
but it is definitely interesting to consider. All right, got a minute here before we uh, come to the break here, but um, I'm going to share with you just a quick thought here from Lauren Farrell. And this is uh, this may seem a little bit uh, red meatish, but I wanted to share this with you. The Hill to Die On. This is the title of her essay. And the subtitle is, This country was founded as a middle finger to tyranny, and it's about time we got back to those roots. Now, Lauren Farrell says, Growing up in our house, election night was like the Super Bowl. We'd stay up late into the night watching the returns. The 2020 election was no different. She says, That night I watched Donald Trump take state after state with ease. Then I watched as the votes started to fluctuate, barely trickled in, and then with only a handful of states to go, I watched as counting was halted altogether. And she says, a sinking feeling crept over me as I witnessed things I had never seen in my life. The media, the left, and rhinos like to say that these feelings about Trump stem from a cult-like devotion to him. It couldn't possibly be that for years prior to the election, we observed an unprecedented witch hunt against him. Neither could it be that I, like many others, watched as states halted their counts under the flimsiest of circumstances. It certainly looked odd. Almost two years on, Americans still question, with evidence, whether or not the 2020 election was rigged. But polite people are not supposed to mention it. America, we're supposed to believe, is far too civilized for cheating. That's for third world countries and communist regimes, not us, right? She says, they've taken gaslighting to a whole new level. And now with last week's raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago home... Lauren Farrell says, I felt that sinking feeling again. They are expecting us to believe that a raid that was authorized by a judge who had previously represented Jeffrey Epstein's staff isn't fishy. At what point does objecting to such coincidences stop being labeled conspiracy thinking and start being recognized as a true representation of corruption? She says, we've seen over the last year and a half with hundreds of Americans locked up for a faux insurrection sends a clear message of intimidation from the Justice Department, the FBI, and this administration. They're showing the American people what happens when you don't conform. And she says, we are in dangerous territory. Whether you like Trump or not, these are, ab- these are obviously abnormal times. Even if we take Trump and the mass media surrounding him out of the equation and just look plainly at the number of people being censored for opinions, the extreme gun bills being advanced, the planned hiring of 87,000 IRS agents, the FBI classifying the Betsy Ross flag as a symbol of militant, violent extremists, it's becoming increasingly difficult to recognize our country. Is this the America that once was? Well, she says there comes a time when one realizes all that is at stake. And then one must put aside the petty issues and focus truly on the important ones. Now, our founders knew that freedom of speech and the right to bear arms were the only way to achieve true freedom from tyranny. That will never not be true. And she says, for her, these two issues, the First and Second Amendments, are the hills that she's willing to die on. And it's no coincidence, these amendments are attacked relentlessly every day in our country. If we fear what, if they fear what we will say and fear our ability to defend ourselves, their motives can only be impure. Dang, this is really on target. I've got a link that I'll include in the show notes. Again, this is Lauren Farrell speaking of the hill to die on. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. This is uh, where you can find food storage, emergency preparedness supplies. It's a big, long list, and there's there are many options and many resources available to you. You may never even have considered. For instance, how would you cook your food if, you know, the electricity was shut off, if you weren't able to access natural gas or otherwise, you know, cook on your wood stove or whatever? How could you cook? Maybe you'd like to consider, you know, harnessing the power of the sun. I'm just saying they they have options. That's lifesavingfood.com. Just click on the link, go to the website there, and and uh, shop around. I bet you find something that would improve your situation. Well, this is going to be a painful realization for some, but uh, it really needs to be said. Our society might be fractured beyond repair. I saw a recent article from Pat Buchanan asking, how and when do we come together again? And in particular, he's talking about when 30 FBI agents showed up at Mar-a-Lago to cart off boxes of documents. It was an authorized, legitimate, justified procedure to retrieve national security secrets being illegally kept there. Or it was an unprecedented regime raid on the home and office of the foremost political rival of President Joe Biden that called to mind a third world country, the East German Stasi, the KGB, or the Gestapo. And January 6, 2021, well, that was a riot, a disgraceful breach of the Capitol involving assaults on Capitol cops that deserve to be and are being punished. No, he says it was more than that, far more. It was an insurrection, a fascist coup, an act of treason led by far-right extremists to abort the transfer of power from the winner of the 2020 election to the loser. It ranks right up there with the 1814 burning of the Capitol by the British. Now, his point, of course, is this is the magnitude of the divide in America. It's like we're watching a movie on two different screens or two different movies on the same screen here. And depending on where you're sitting, that's what you see. It's a divide that extends far beyond the clashing views of January 6th and the Mar-a-Lago raid. So consider abortion. Before the 1960s, Pat Buchanan says abortion was almost universally regarded as a shameful and criminal act. Doctors who performed abortions were disgraced and sometimes sent to prison. But after the Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court declared that Roe v. Wade in 1973 was wrongly decided, restoration of women's right to an abortion is being championed by half the nation. The other half of America believes uh, abortion involves the killing of an unborn, innocent child. Part of America celebrates the Supreme Court's decision to declare marriage equality for homosexuals, yet a traditionalist minority believes such a mandate imposes on the nation a secularist morality contradicted by the tenets of the Christian faith that was the basis of our laws for the first two centuries as a nation. Nor is it only the clashing morality that divides us. Pat Buchanan says, for a nation, a country, a people, a democracy to endure, There needs to be a broad consensus of belief, culture, custom, and politics. So on the issue of law and order, without which a republic cannot stand, there's now disagreement over the role and conduct of our police. During the George Floyd summer of 2020, defund the police was the clamor of the left. And among the street chants of Black Lives Matter was pigs in a blanket, fry them like bacon. Only a stunning political recoil caused its abandonment. Buchanan says, for a nation, especially a great world power like the United States, some things are indispensable to its preservation. 
A democratic republic needs to preserve the value of its currency, to defend its borders against illegal mass migrations and invasions, to preserve law and order, especially in its great cities. Which of these requisites exist today? When the nation suffers an eight suffers eight percent inflation, two hundred fifty thousand illegal aliens cross our southern border every month, and mass shootings in quotation marks occur daily in our cities, in which at least four victims are gunned down, wounded, or killed. His point is that the preservation of a democracy also requires the confidence of people in its defining institutions. Yet since the Reagan era, Americans' collective confidence in our major institutions has fallen from one-half of the nation to one-fourth. In 2022, confidence in the Supreme Court fell by a third to 25%. Only a fourth of the country retained high confidence in the presidency. And confidence in Congress plummeted to 7%, or one in every 14 Americans. One in six Americans had great confidence in our newspapers with only one in nine citizens saying the same thing about television news. So, in summary, we are a country whose people have a diminishing confidence in almost all of its institutions, from big business to churches to universities to media. Only small business in the U.S. military enjoy the confidence of the American people. By the way, I just want to point out, I know I'm on kind of a fourth-turning kick, but that is also very consistent with a fourth-turning dynamic. Confidence in institutions wavers and in some cases completely disappears. And that's why the landscape looks very, very different on the other side of the crisis. And we are right in the middle of our crisis right now. So it'll be interesting to see what comes. Now, Pat Buchanan says, look, we have been through and recovered from divisive times. In the 1860s, 11 of 33 states seceded and fought for four years to gain their independence of the Union. The 1960s were divisive, but the left, with Senator George McGovern, its political expression, captured less than 40% of the vote against Richard Nixon in 1972. Ronald Reagan ran up two landslides in the 1980s. But he says those days are long gone. The left today dominates the academic community and culture to a greater degree than it once did and is further removed from the heart of of the country in middle America than it has ever been. And so Pat Buchanan asks, how? When does America ever unite again? And what unites us other than an external attack on the country like Pearl Harbor or 9-11? Where is the common ground on which to stand? Does such ground even exist, given the divisions in race and religion and ethnicity and the seemingly irreconcilable disagreements over morality, ideology, culture, and politics? And he ends with the question, has the great experiment run its course? It's a fair question. It's kind of a scary question to contemplate as well. And the only answer I have is the things that are good, the things that are worth preserving, I believe can and should be preserved even at the individual level. I'm doing everything in my power to teach my kids to love, appreciate rather, and embrace their freedom and their natural rights. That's something that they are being actively taught by other institutions to get rid of. So time will tell which one of us is going to succeed. I'm doing what I'm doing with love as opposed to compulsion. <laughs> we'll see how it how it pans out in the end. All right, one final note. 
With the IRS arming up and drastically increasing its size, it sure looks like they're getting ready to go to war on the taxpayers. Jeff Thomas says this is likely going to mean the end of tax havens throughout the world as well. And I'm going to include an article from him that uh, will, will give you wonderful history on income tax and, and tax havens historically. And, and basically, he's, he's got uh, some really good historic uh, perspective here, but he also makes a very clear point that we're going to see, in the not-so-distant future, creditors dumping treasuries back into the European Union and U.S. markets. What that means is stock and bond markets will crash. Currencies will crash. Debt defaults will take place. Banks that are seemingly too big to fail will fail and there will be no fund from which to bail them out. Now, what we can expect will be an increasingly desperate attempt to rob people of their personal wealth. And this situation is going to ramp up to a draconian level. Then, quite suddenly, he says, the crisis will be upon us. The dreaded tanks, so to speak, will run out of fuel. The governments will lose the economic power to continue their advance against economic freedom. In other words, they will collapse under the weight of their own bureaucracy and their own ineptness. But Jeff Thomas's advice is that the goal for each individual who values his freedom might then be to avoid being the low-hanging fruit until that day so that he might come out intact on the other side. What that means for you and me is there, there may be a need financially for us to avoid being that low-hanging fruit that attracts the attention of the IRS. Now, look, I'm pretty outspoken. I've had numerous people ask me, so why haven't you been audited? Why isn't the IRS, you know, uh, you know, breathing down your neck? I don't have a good answer to that other than I don't make enough money to really interest them. You know, I, I make just just enough, and that's good. That's good. I'm, I'm you know, a, a, attaining material wealth is not the, the highest priority for me right now. In fact, uh, really, where I'm coming from, I want to have impact, but I also understand that uh, we are about to enter a period where everything we do financially is going to be under increased scrutiny. So things you can do that don't red flag yourself, probably wise to do those things. Store your wealth in tangible forms that you can get your hands on that can't be frozen or taken from you. And let's see how this thing plays out. This is The Brian Hyde Show.